Good morning. Um, I want to ask you all to be praying for pastors and directors this Tuesday and Wednesday, October 3rd and 4th. We're going to spend some time in prayer and planning and dreaming, uh, in particular about the next two to three years here at ECC, and we would love for you to be praying for us. Pray that we will be able to listen to the Spirit and listen to one another and that God will accomplish what He wants in and through our, our time together. Again, in the e-letter this week, there'll be an article about what we're doing, but I just want to invite you here now, if you'd be praying for us the next few days, we'd appreciate it. So today, we are just past the midpoint in the seven prophetic words that appear in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We're just there, including today's passage. There's only, there are only three more that we have to do, um, have to get through. And then we get to Revelation chapter 4, which is when the real fun begins. In the meantime, as we stack prophetic word on top of prophetic word on top of prophetic word, it can all get to feel a bit heavy, a bit overwhelming. But we need to remember that as challenging as these words are, and they are challenging, uh, they do not end with a warning, they end with a promise. They don't end with a warning, they end with a promise. I had a, a, a friend that we hadn't seen in a while join us for worship a few weeks ago, and uh, she walked in, and she saw it was Revelation, and her first response was, ugh, Revelation. <laughs> she left a little happier than she thought she was going to leave, but it can be heavy. And the book of Revelation seems to be aware of this potential heaviness, so from time to time, John, the author, interrupts the narrative flow to give us a bit of relief, not comic relief, but cosmic relief. See what I did there? That is, these interruptions in the flow allow us to see the big picture of what's going on behind the scenes. They give us a little bit of relief. There are ten of these interruptions in um, the book of Revelation, which are known uh, by scholars as interludes. Interludes. They, they pause the action a bit to offer us hope and inspiration and reorientation to the larger story of where all things are headed. So I want to start this morning with an interlude of my own. It comes to us from the last paragraph, from the last page of the last book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle. Years ago, when my family was on vacation, we were listening to these on tape. Remember that? Books on tape. Listening to these. And um, we came to this, we came to this last paragraph or so, and I remember thinking, that is beautiful. And it's kind of stayed with me. Uh, I just want to read it for you. I've included the quote in the Bible app live event as well. I think it echoes what Revelation is trying to show us. Speaking um, of Aslan, the lion who represents Christ in the book, C.S. Lewis writes this. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Lewis's words, I think, would resonate with John 
the author of the book of Revelation. He might say, yes, that's it. That's what we're going for. That's where the book of Revelation is headed. We will get there. For now, we're still in these challenging words, the churches. As we've said each week, there are five components to most of the prophetic words in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. The first component is Christ or how Christ identifies himself to the church to which he is uh, speaking. Each of these Christ statements vary from passage to passage. Most of them are phrases borrowed from the first chapter of Revelation when John first gets this vision of Jesus. And most, all if, uh, most of them, if not all of them, will also pop up later again in the book of Revelation. So Jesus says to John in chapter 3, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In Revelation 1.16, John tells us that in his vision he saw Christ, and in his right hand he held seven stars. A few verses later, verse 19 of chapter 1, Jesus says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. In other words, these stars represent the angelic messengers Jesus addresses at the beginning of each of these prophetic words for each of the churches. Jesus also says he holds the seven spirits of God in his hand. I said a few weeks ago, there are a couple of ways to uh, interpret this. We may, they, these, this. These seven spirits of God may refer to the Holy Spirit or the sevenfold spirit of God. Some of your Bibles have a footnote that renders that as an, as an alternate translation. Or it may refer to the seven angels. Now, a strong case can be made for both of these interpretations. But in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, we find something that ties into this passage, and it also ties into something that pops up later, at least once, maybe more, in the, in the book of Revelation. In Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, uh, the prophet has a vision. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it and with seven channels to the lamps. So first we have an angel. Second, we have someone who is asleep and needs to be woken up and that waking up from sleep thing will pop up in Revelation 3 shortly. Third, we have seven lampstands. We have seven lamps. Fourth, many people say there is a connection between the seven channels of these lampstands that supply the oil to the flames and the seven spirits of Revelation. So, verses 4 through 6 of Zechariah 4, we then read this, same vision. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Seven lampstands, seven channels, seven lamps, seven flames, seven spirits of God, or the sevenfold spirit of God. Maybe this is about the Holy Spirit then. In addition, chapter 1, verse 4, the greeting part of the letter is Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian, that is, Grace and peace come from God, from the seven spirits before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And finally, it makes the most sense to see the number seven as symbolic, because so much in Revelation is symbolic, and the number seven is important. The number seven is the number of fullness and completion. So scholars suggest that this is John's way of saying that the fullness of God's Holy Spirit has been made available to the seven churches. Therefore, it's been available, made available to all of us, to all churches. So after Christ has identified himself in this way, we would normally encounter a word of commendation. 
something they're doing well. But we don't find it just yet. It comes a bit later. So Jesus jumps straight to condemnation. He gets down to business in the last part of verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I know your deeds, he says. Now, it sounds like he's about to say some good things. I mean, the people could be listening to this being read and going, oh, he's, he's about to tell us about what we're doing well. He's about to tell us he's pleased, he's proud of our good deeds. After all, any other time that's appeared so far, when Jesus says, I know your deeds, it's a good thing, right? That's not what happens. Turns out their deeds, no matter how good they may be, cannot hide another reality about their spiritual condition. They may have a reputation for being alive. They may do a lot of good works. They may help a lot of people. Their worship gatherings may be packed, and maybe they're considering going to a second service. But the truth is, they are dead. Now, in the book of James, deadness is attributed to people who do not do good works. As the body without the spirit is dead, says James 2.26, so faith without deeds is dead. But here in the city of Sardis, the church there, they are doing works of some kind. So they think they are alive, but they are not. They are dead. Now imagine how shocking this would have been to hear this read aloud in front of God and everybody, and then to know how humiliating it would be to know that then it would be sent on to other churches in the area who may think, oh, yeah, the church in Sardis, they're really alive, but now Jesus says, no, they're dead. This brief condemnation section is tightly interlaced with what follows in the challenge section. Here's what they need to do about their deadness. Verse 2, wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. The word translated as wake up comes from a root word that means arise and can also be used to speak of raising someone from the dead. See, the city of Sardis was once home to an exceptionally large temple that was originally dedicated to Artemis. It was 160 feet by 300 feet with 78 columns rising 58 feet. The temple was destroyed in 499 B.C. and partially reconstructed during the time of Alexander the Great more than 150 years later. But it was unfinished. It was unfinished. At that time, it was dedicated to uh, the Asiatic goddess Sibyl, who sometimes is referred to in Greek as Artemis again. And Sibyl, the people believe, Sibyl was a goddess who had a superpower. People believe she could raise the dead. And then we get a bit more detail about those deeds Jesus mentioned. It turns out that like the temple of Artemis or Sibyl, their works are unfinished, imperfect, and incomplete. They they have the foundation, but their discipleship, their transformation is unfinished. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, large crowds are following Jesus, but it seems that Jesus is unimpressed Numbers don't really matter that much to Jesus if they are not accompanied by commitment and a fullness of devotion and a willingness to walk the way of the cross. So to get to the heart of the matter, Jesus tells them a parable. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying... 
this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I don't want to mislead you. The words translated here as complete and finish are a different Greek word than what we find in Revelation 3, but but it's the same idea. Something in their walk with Christ is incomplete and unfinished. Their discipleship is stuck. Where are we stuck? Where are you stuck? Where am I stuck in my discipleship? What in our faith is incomplete? In what area of faith, in what area of our our walks with Christ are we compromised and unfinished? Now, let's be clear. None of us is complete. None of us is finished. We are all on our way. We are all in process. But sometimes, like the proverbial hare racing the tortoise, we stop by the side of the road and we take a nap. The grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God in Christ is more than sufficient enough for our unfinishedness and our naps and our compromises. The grace of God is sufficient, but there is more yet for you and I to experience. There always is. You're never going to get to the end of Jesus. And I, as your pastor, want you to know and experience everything that God has for you to experience and to know of Christ Jesus, here and in the hereafter. Christ calls us not merely to go to heaven when we die, but to walk with Him now and to become more and more like Him from the inside out. What the Apostle Paul refers to in Galatians 4.19 is having Christ formed in us. The transforming nature of discipleship is reflected in our ECC touchstone of transformation, of course, where we are called to be transformed and ever transforming as the image of Christ within us is restored. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, writer who lived during World War II, famously said, that too often we Christians settle for cheap grace. Most of you have probably heard this quote. It's, uh, it bears repeating. In his classic work, Discipleship, he writes this. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living, incarnate Jesus Christ. So we put all this together. When we settle for cheap grace, we coast, we rest on our laurels, and there is a deadness inside of us. When we settle for less, when we compromise, when we get complacent, when we rest on our laurels, There is a deadness inside of us. We become like Wednesday Adams. Only she likes the deadness inside, and we shouldn't. Where do you and I need to strengthen what remains? Where do we need to do a little prayerful reflection and invite the sevenfold Spirit of God to speak to us, to reveal to us those places of compromise, those places of deadness within? I see this is distracting. I shall move on to the next slide. Verse 3. The challenge continues. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. How do we wake up and rise from our deadness and our unfinished lives? We start by remembering 
what we have received and heard. We start by remembering what we have received and heard. We human beings can be very forgetful, especially when it comes to things that matter the most. We can forget the grace that we knew at first. We can forget the basics of what is necessary for growth in Christ. And we can forget that faithfully following Jesus, even imperfectly, even inconsistently, faithfully following Jesus is its own reward. So we make the choice. We choose to remember. We choose to remind ourselves of what matters most. And we repent of our forgetfulness. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 puts it this way. It's kind of lengthy, but it's good. His divine power, Christ's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. He's not done yet. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Let us not forget what Christ has done for us, friends. And let us make every effort to add to our faith each of these things, to add to our unfinished lives the things that help to complete them. We can, it turns out, cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our own transformation. If the people in the church in Sardis do not answer the challenge... If they do not wake up from their sleep of death, however, Jesus says he will come to them like a thief. Four times in the New Testament, Jesus' second coming is referred to as coming like a thief in the night. So sort of as research for our study in Revelation, I said, you know what I should do? I should go back and watch a 1972 very bad film. Raise your hands if you've seen it or heard of it. Called a th- Well, that was quick. <coughs> A thief in the night. Anybody? A thief in the night? Okay, if you're not raising your hand, consider yourself blessed. Uh, I will never get that hour and nine minutes back. I'll just tell you right now. It's terrible. But it's all built around this image here. He doesn't say a thief in the night in Revelation. He says like a thief, but it's related. We also know that twice in the history of Sardis, the city was taken by a surprise attack. Twice. Though its position high up on a mountain with near perpendicular walls gave it a sense of being kind of invincible. Now, while accounts of these attacks vary, what they all agree on is this. The people in Sardis were not vigilant. They were not prepared. They were not watching. Jesus and the authors of the New Testament are unafraid to use a negative and alarming and frightening image of a thief coming in the middle of the night, coming whenever, to warn us of Jesus' coming judgment. The point of this image, however, is to motivate action. The point of this image is to motivate our repentance. Finally, verse 4, Jesus gives us an important word of commendation. He finally gets to that. Verse 4, 
Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So apparently the church in Sardis is, a little old school here, mostly dead. And mostly dead is slightly alive. There is hope for them yet. Yeah, also distracting. I'm, we'll get there in a minute. Those who are, who are not spiritually dead in Sardis will, will wear white and they will walk with Jesus. Now for John's ancient readers, the color white calls to mind purity from sin. It calls to mind holiness that is being set apart for God's purpose and it calls to mind honor. In Revelation 19, 14, as things head toward a climax, we read this. Oops, I just did that, didn't I? The armies of heaven were following him, Christ, riding on white horses, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. But here, in chapter 3 of Revelation, those who have not given in are not riding on, white, on horses in white. They are walking with Jesus. They are walking with Jesus as a champion or king might walk with his troops through the battlefield after the victory has been won. They'll walk with me on parade, Eugene Peterson's The Message says, a victory parade. And we get to the conqueror's promise. What will those who endure, who conquer, who are victorious receive as their reward? Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Like those few people in the church in Sardis who have not given in to compromise, who are not dead inside, the conquerors will also wear white robes, joining them in the victory parade as well. And their names will never be blotted out of the book of life. Greco-Roman cities maintain scrolls of citizens, and if you, in some of them, if you as a citizen had been found guilty of committing a capital crime, you would be put to death and your name would be removed from that scroll. Not so in Revelation. God's judgment is different than human judgment. These readers may be ostracized by family members and friends alike. They may be put to death. They may have their names removed from the scroll of citizens. Even so, their names will remain in the Lamb's book of life where they are written with indelible ink and cannot be blotted out. Those who are victorious are promised abundant and eternal life in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth and will not be excluded from it. In the kingdom of God, there is no room for cancel culture. One final image. When someone was awarded a, a laurel wreath as a sign of victory or to honor them for something at a civic gathering, their name would be announced to all who were in attendance. They would be acknowledged and honored. Sort of like any civic event you go to in the city of Lafayette when Sheila Klinker is present. <laughs> Which is any civic event you go to. In, in the same way, Christ will acknowledge and honor those who endure in the faith, who hold fast to what they've heard and received, those who have resisted the temptation to compromise and remained faithful. And so this morning, as we prepare our hearts for communion, let us sit with just a few reflective, prayerful questions before we take part in communion.
knowing that the unfinished nature of our lives and the incomplete, incomplete and imperfect nature of our deeds is a reality for us all, and knowing that the grace of God in Christ Jesus is more than sufficient for all our weaknesses and sin, and knowing that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, where in your walk with Christ might the Holy Spirit be calling you to give attention this day or this week? Where is God calling you to add to your faith something that is lacking? Where might the Spirit be drawing you to a new place of trust and a new level of completion, effectiveness, productivity, and victory? I want you to join me in a moment of silence and let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us about some area of our lives, of our discipleship that is unfinished. Maybe you can name 15. We just need one to start. We just need one. And let us invite the Spirit to lead us in whatever next steps might be necessary that God might finish the work that he started in us. Would you join me in a moment of prayer and silence? God, we ask you now to send forth your Spirit to probe our hearts and minds and to give us an image, a word, a phrase, an event, a reality in our lives on which you might be calling us to cooperate with your Spirit and to begin to build. Good and gracious God, we thank you for your promise to be with us and to walk with us, to sustain us. We thank you for your grace, which is more than sufficient enough for all of who we are and are not. I pray for each person here, each person joining us online. Whatever you may have shown any one of us as an area that we could move forward in our relationship with you as a place that could be moving toward completion or finish. Whatever you may have shown us about the potential deadness of our lives, God, I pray that you give us the grace to take whatever step you've given us and to know that we do so, Lord, not as those who have to earn your love or earn your favor, but as those who are loved and are favored more than we could ever know before we do anything. Lord, help us to become more like you. Help us become a better witness to the goodness of Jesus Christ in our community and in our world. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches.